Hey, have you guys noticed how lawyers are always like the life of the party by just always being really focused on the minutia that no one else could give the slightest crap about? You know, it, it's part of being a lawyer to care about the details. You know, we, we like to look at all sides, anticipate all the arguments. And let's face it, we just really like sounding smart. Yeah, and those are good quality to have in lawyers. I mean, you know, maybe we're not any fun at parties. Or <laughs> at least I'm not anyway, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, speak for yourself, Joseph. <laughs> take, uh, take qualified immunity, for example. Everyone's talking about it, but I know that you guys are going to try to tell me that it isn't as simple as people are making it out to be. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's not as simple as they're making it out to be. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so on today's episode, we'll be discussing qualified immunity, uh, how it started, how courts are applying it now, and why people are calling for its end. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Welcome to today's episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the podcast about the real life of lawyering. I'm Laura Temme. Allie is off this week, but Good. I'm... <laughs> are you gonna let me introduce you or are you just gonna talk over me no that's fine sorry <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm joined via the internet by andy leonetti and joe fawbush how are you guys doing oh just <laughs> just fantastic i'm ready i'm ready to rip and run you're ready to go week, today? guys yeah <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm good too it's a beautiful day outside and uh we're we're ready to go well, yeah, we do have a very interesting topic to discuss today, and it's something that I think all three of us have pretty strong opinions about. Um, qualified immunity has, it, it seems to come up in public discussion every once in a while, and now it's back in now full it's force. now it's really... It's, it's back in, in full force, yeah. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about the background of it and why we have it and why maybe we shouldn't have it. Yeah, and Allie is not here to rein us in. <laughs> yes, it's going to get wild today. <laughs> I will say that I have been against qualified immunity for, for a long time. So before it was cool. Before, before it was cool, it was. exactly, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was in on the early stuff, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we are going to try to present both sides of the arguments. There are, there are legitimate reasons for qualified immunity to exist, um, in some form. In some form, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into some of the details, but yeah, just off the bat, none of us are, are huge fans of the doctrine as it currently stands, and, and we'll get into why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess I'll just start here. Um, you know, the very, I was doing some reading yesterday, you know, reminding myself of qualified immunity and government immunity, and the very concept of sovereign immunity comes from. English common law, which was basically a concept that the throne had to give assent to being sued. Mm -hmm. It is not mentioned in our constitution. It's just upheld by the courts. So Correct. I'm going to need you guys to convince me why this isn't the dumbest piece of crap legal doctrine that we have right now. <laughs> I mean, ooh, that's a, that's a big ask, Andy. Um, you know, I, I think that Oof, how do I want to say this? Uh, I guess the, the origins of qualified immunity aren't completely unreasonable. However, the way that it's developed as a legal doctrine and the way that it is applied today in particular, um, in my opinion, does a lot more harm than good. 
So I just that's what I would say right off the bat. Yeah, I want to get into what Andy was talking about with the creation of the courts um, in just a second. But just for our listeners who maybe need a refresher or haven't heard of it before, qualified immunity offers liability protection for public officials and police officers when they're engaged within the scope of their employment. And so this means that police officers who are acting as police officers and doing their jobs uh, typically have immunity from civil liability. So if they're um, engaged in a shootout, for example, and the victim of the police officer shooting sues, uh, they can claim qualified immunity saying that they acted within and in their role as a police officer, and that prevents the, the family of the victims from suing. Um, but as far as Andy was talking about with, with the creation of the courts, you know, the first time that the Supreme Court really entered into this subject was in 1967 with the Warren Court. <clears throat> and in that decision, the Chief Justice was trying to balance kind of the need to hold bad actors accountable, but then also this really kind of a pragmatic viewpoint that if police officers were worried about getting sued, they couldn't properly do their jobs. And so that's really where the doctrine came from, and that's the justification for it. Um, the legal reasoning of that decision is a little thin, in my opinion. Um, but I do think, you know, the Warren Court is kind of known for doing what they thought was right. Um, some have called them more of an activist court. Um, you know, so th so I think their biggest concern was, and actually I'll, I'll pull up a quote here because I think it's kind of nice. The chief justice wrote that a policeman's lot is not so unhappy that he must choose between being charged with a dereliction of duty if he does not arrest when he has probable cause and being mulcted in damages if he does. And so that was kind of the pro and con of it for, for the chief justice. Mm -hmm. Well, and something that I think is important in that particular case is that the the plaintiffs were arrested under a Mississippi statute that was later found unconstitutional. And so one of the points that the Supreme Court made was that these police officers, it's it wasn't part of their job to predict that this law that they were upholding was actually unconstitutional. So at the time they had they believed that they had probable cause under a statute that was valid. Yeah, that's a great point because in those circumstances what the court decided is pretty reasonable and, mm -hmm. and, and pretty pragmatic. Um, but it's kind of from that little seed, mm -hmm. it has grown into this huge beast yep. that it is today. Mm -hmm. And and that's really where, where the problem is coming from. So thanks, Earl, but no thanks, Earl. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have a response to that. I don't <laughs> yeah, it sounds like classic cut the baby both sidesism what <laughs> king solomon come on you guys i know that i know the story you're referring to i just don't understand what you're saying about it it's like well <laughs> we gotta let cops rough people up if you know if they're applying a law that's in place <laughs> yeah so. well and I, I think it's something that it it seems like it happened by degrees as well. You know, just the, the more cases that came up involving this, the doctrine just got expanded more and more. There's There was another big case in 1982, um, Harlow versus Fitzgerald, where this 
sort of good faith dealing standard that we had before was replaced by a standard where the plaintiff can realistically only overcome qualified immunity if they can show that the government official had violated a clearly established statutory or constitutional right that they should have known at the time. And so it becomes this thing where the conduct has to be so egregious um, that it would it just it has to be completely ridiculous in order to overcome qualified immunity. And that's where a lot of the problems come in. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of want to elaborate on on your point, Laura, because mm-hmm. you know the the Warren Court had this good faith standard where the police officer in that case was arresting somebody in good faith, thinking that the person had violated the law, mm-hmm. and you know, fifteen some years later, the Supreme Court took another case and said, "Oh, well, that that good faith standard is too subjective. Um, mm-hmm. We can't use that anymore." Instead, we're going to create this completely objective standard. Um, objective in, in air quotes here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have some thoughts on that. But yeah. Keep going. <laughs> and, and so that's really where, where it is today, is that um, the officer has to know that they're violating a clearly established right. So it doesn't have anything to do with good faith. Um, it's mm-hmm. just a matter of, is there an existing court case that has almost identical facts to the situation that the police officer is alleged to have used excessive force in. Mm -hmm. And if there is almost exact same facts, then the police officer does not get qualified immunity. But if there is any kind of a distinction that the court can make, you know, whatsoever, then qualified immunity applies. And so it doesn't take into account, um, you know, for example, whether the officer was acting maliciously or um, if there were uh, racial overtones to the police officer's conduct, it's just a matter of, is there an existing court case in the back? And, and the real issue here is that, you know, a judge can manufacture a factual distinction for almost anything, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so my issue is that this doctrine is applied wildly and consistently. I mean, it, it really does depend on the judge that you have deciding the case, because mm-hmm. if the judge thinks that you should have qualified immunity, they can tie it to a previous case. If the judge thinks that you shouldn't, well, then they can manufacture whatever distinction they want, because no two situations are ever the exact same. You know, that never happens mm-hmm. in the universe. So uh, it, it's something that isn't necessarily applied consistently and that's really kind of the definition of a bad legal policy is that it's something that's arbitrary mm-hmm. and inconsistent. Yeah, so far the Supreme Court I was reading about the 2002 case Hope v Pelzer which I'm I'm not sure but maybe like the maybe the Supreme Court's only kind of exception to the rule and and there Uh, We have corrections officers who disciplined a prisoner by handcuffing him to a hitching post for seven hours with his hands above his shoulders in the sun. Um, At one point, a guard taunted the prisoner by giving water to a guard dog in plain sight. Um, There was um, no prior case that had confronted similar facts, according to uh, the website The Appeal. Um, And so the Supreme Court ruled that the officer's cruelty was, quote, so obvious that they should have had, quote, fair warning that their conduct 
violated the constitutional protection against cruel and, and unusual punishment. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a pretty as we the three of us are all in pretty in strong agreement that those circumstances are appalling and disgusting, but that's mm-hmm. pretty pretty far to be like, "Oh, for a judge to be like, "Oh, all right, well, I guess that's pretty bad." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why it's rarely used because those were extreme cases and um you know, like, for example, there was a recent case out of the 11th Circuit where a police officer was chasing a suspect into a backyard, um, and he ran into a family with children in the backyard, and he told everybody to get down on the ground, uh, which they did. So everybody was laying down on the ground. And then the family pet, a dog, came out into the yard, and the officer fired at the dog. The dog left the officer was there for, you know, a couple of seconds. The dog came back and it wasn't like attacking or anything, but it, it was kind of around in the house. The dog was basically worried about its family mm-hmm. and the officer fired again and hit a child. Oh my God. Now, so the analysis then in that case is, was there a previous case that was similar enough and did it, you know, or was it so obvious that you shouldn't be firing at a dog with children around um, that it was excessive? And in a split decision, the 11th Circuit said that there was no similar previous case, even though there were, were some cases that were kind of factually similar, like a police officer had fired at a truck and hit a passenger in the truck. And in that case, he was not given qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, in that case, you know, you could see it being similar to the situation that with the dog. But the court said that they were too distinct of facts in order for it to be a clearly established right. And then two of the three judges on the panel said that it was not so obvious that it violated uh, the Fourth Amendment right against excessive force. <laughs> So in that case, the officer had qualified immunity and the child who was shot, um, he didn't die, thank goodness, but um, he did not get any money. So is it basically on the cop to then stay up to date on these applicable court rulings? So if they, like, is it on a cop during a traffic stop to say, oh, well, this sounds similar to when (laughs) another cop in the 11th circuit was denied qualified <laughs> immunity so i better not so i better not do this like is are our courts giving cops like enough leeway to basically claim ignorance i mean yeah. well yeah because if 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 they know that you basically have to have the same facts in order to not have qualified immunity they don't really have a reason to keep up keep up on any of it Oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but your your point is great because nobody reads federal appellate court cases except for us. Except for you, except for you two, dorks. Yeah. Um, so no, that's a good point. And then, but that actually has been used as a justification by the Supreme Court for why they interpret uh, this rule narrowly, because they they argue that you know police should not be forced to apply the law in new situations and just kind of be able to do that in a split second. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they say, okay, so we need to interpret it very narrowly so that there is clearly a situation that was like this where you can't use it. Um, 
as far as that goes, though, I mean, you know, like I said, police aren't going to be reading previous court cases. They may know certain circumstances under which, you know, they can use excessive force or they can use force and, and when it becomes excessive. Um, but yeah, they're not going to go through and, and try to read up on all the qualified immunity cases that have occurred in their jurisdiction. Get to reading, cops. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I saw that just just last month, the Supreme Court declined to take up a case from the Ninth Circuit, where they had ruled, where the Ninth Circuit had ruled that who two two police officers in Fresno, California, who allegedly stole more than two hundred twenty five thousand dollars in assets while executing a search warrant, could not be sued over the incident. <laughs> Um, although, although the officers ought to have recognized that the alleged theft was morally wrong, the Ninth Circuit wrote, the officers, quote, did not have clear notice that it violated the Fourth Amendment. I mean, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the things I struggle with this, especially when, when it involves constitutional violations, because I, I don't know what... <laughs> what law is more clearly established in this country than the constitution. Um, so if you, if you don't know, <laughs> I don't know, I have a hard time wrapping my head around someone being tasked with carrying out the law and not knowing what is going to violate someone's constitutional rights. Andy, I love that you brought up that case too, because I, I actually wrote on that, uh, on the Fine Law website. It's on our Ninth Circuit blog, so I'll, I'll plug that quick. Go check that out. Um, <laughs> you can put it in the show notes. <laughs> oh, I missed yeah. that. I, I missed that. I'm, so, I'm sorry that I don't keep up to date with with everything you write, because I will put in a plug for the <laughs> both, of, both of you. Both of you write exceptionally well on court cases and <laughs> make, you, it easy, make, make it pretty easy for a dope like me to understand them. <laughs> <laughs> That's really nice, Andy. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, um, but no, the the facts of that case are are just absurd. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, w I won't get into the whole thing that that came through it, but but that was another situation in which there seemed to be a clearly established right already in the Ninth Circuit, which would have put the officer on notice, um, but not the, to steal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but the court really did kind of manufacture a distinction. Uh, between the two cases. Basically, it involved whether the property that was stolen was mentioned in the search warrant. And so if you steal property in the Ninth Circuit as a police officer and you steal property that is not mentioned in a search warrant, then it is violating a clearly established right. However, if you steal property that is mentioned in a search warrant, then it's not violating a clearly established right. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense, right? Yeah, of course. Makes total, makes total sense. <laughs> so if I could also really localize this for a second, the city of Minneapolis has entered into a temporary restraining order with our state's Department of Human Rights as part of an ongoing investigation into uses of excessive force in light of of George Floyd's murder that states now that chokeholds and other similar forms of physical restraint are banned. And so now is, is that basically, are you guys, would you guys think that 
since that's clearly written out in the restraining order, if if a police officer here in Minneapolis were to use one of those restraints and it led to injury or death or anything like that, that they would not have qualified immunity? Or is that not enough? I would think that would be enough, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think if, if the officers are prohibited um, mm-hmm. by their own rules for to, to not use chokeholds and they did something, um, then that would be something that they would not have qualified immunity for. I mean, one of the issues is that, of course, officers do have the authority to use deadly force in appropriate situations. And so there's nothing that says that an officer is violating the law or using excessive force just because um, a suspect ends up dead, you know, because in some cases the use of deadly force is justified. And so that's why they go back to all these clearly established court cases, but in something where it's just prohibited to use, um, I I don't think they would be able to get qualified immunity. So that's good. (laughs) Boy, what a relief. (laughs) (laughs) I did also want to talk a, a little bit just because, um, you know, we're ripping on qualified immunity as a legal doctrine. Um, this is not to say that police officers um, are always in the wrong when something like this happens or we're, we're not understanding of the difficult jobs that police officers have, at least um, for myself. You know, I, I understand the reason for qualified immunity to exist. Mm-hmm. And I understand that, you know, police officers have to make split second decisions in high stress situations and it's it's a tough job. Um, so really my issue is with the legal doctrine itself. Um, you know, like I said, I, I don't think it's a very clear law. It was created by the courts and, I, you know, I just think it's impl- applied inconsistently. So that's really my big issue. I, you know, I don't want it to to turn into like a, you know, all cops use excessive force. Um, and so I just, I just wanted to clear that. And maybe, maybe you guys uh, want to disagree with me on that. I mean, I think I, I, I would agree with that for the most part. And I think for me, one of the things that bothers me the most about this as a legal doctrine is the sort of elimination of subjective intent. You know, the, the courts don't look at someone's intent really at all in these cases. Um, there was a, a 2015 case where police were in, were in a high speed chase. Several officers set out tire spikes on a couple different roads to try to slow down this suspect. And another trooper without approval from his supervisor or any training in how to do so decided that <laughs> it was a good idea to post up, I think on a bridge, if I remember correctly, and try to shoot the engine block of the suspect's car. So he fires six shots at this car and, of course, doesn't hit the engine block. He hits the suspect four to six times. And immediately afterward, his first words to his supervisor were, how's that for proactive in reference to earlier criticism he had received about not taking enough initiative on the job? But that statement was not part of the case the civil case against him at all. It wasn't considered because this is supposed to be now an objective standard. And so that's something that I really struggle with in this. Yeah, for sure. And boy, what a funny guy. 
Right. Yeah. Like, just, <laughs> I, are you serious? Is that- <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I still, and just, I mean, I'm, ba- I'm not baffled because I know how things work here. Um, but it is baffling that we cannot just leave these matters in the hands of juries like we do for every other civil and criminal matter in this country. Um, it's not like every jury is out there is going to be bloodthirsty to soak a police officer for every dollar in his bank account. There, There's going to be people whose sentiments lie elsewhere, which is the he was doing his job the best way that he knew how. Mm-hmm. You know, one one thing that I think is important to remember here is that in in these civil cases in the vast majority of them, possibly even 99% of them, it's not the, um, the restitution is not coming out of that officer's pocket. It's coming from the, from the municipality. From the taxpayers. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Officers are indemnified. That was going to be my exact point. And then, (laughs) you know, and it's, and it's honestly, even if they weren't, um, you know, we can be honest about lawyers too. And, you know, if, a police officer is is going to be liable based on his or her salary, um, you know, they're not going to get sued because it's not something that an attorney is going to go after, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, um, I mean, maybe they would just just for the benefit of just the to family. prove a point, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you know, for the most part, um, it's not like police officers are going to pose a tempting target based mm-hmm. on the money that they make. So see, we can be critical about attorneys too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud. I'm oh proud yeah, of both I, of you. yeah. I'm I'm very capable of that. <laughs> <laughs> of myself included. <laughs> so looking forward, I did also want to talk about kind of what's going to happen with qualified immunity because obviously this is a, a hot topic of conversation. Um, Congress has introduced legislation to end qualified immunity. The House has. The House has, yes. Which, yeah, I mean, we can debate how likely that is to actually become a law. But Senate Republicans <laughs> have said that that is is DOA in the Senate. Not too surprising, but there are uh, there are movements afoot. Is I guess kind of the the larger point. Um, mm-hmm. And then even on the Supreme Court, you know, we've had both Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Sotomayor, who couldn't be farther apart in terms of their judicial philosophies, you know, both of them have said, we need to revisit qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. And Andy, I think you mentioned before, the the court did deny cert for a couple of cases just a few weeks ago, but there's quite a few more that are on uh, the docket. So um, they may very well revisit it next term. Um, we, we don't quite know yet, uh, but that's something to be aware of because I do think that there is going to be pressure for the Supreme Court to take another look at this issue and maybe clarify things, amend things. Um, I don't know how likely it would be for them to revoke it entirely, but it's definitely something to, to keep on the radar. Yeah, I don't hold out a lot of hope, but... <laughs> <laughs> they they make they make clear they may clarify the statute more to make make it the objective standard that the cop has to say out loud I am killing you because I don't like you. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> well, 
I don't even know uh, what to follow that with. Yeah. Um, I will say there there is some uh, justification for thinking that the Supreme Court won't, just because historically the Supreme Court has been very, very much um, pro-qualified immunity. They They tend to take cases that end up overturning a lower court who did not give the officer qualified immunity, and they rarely do the opposite. So there is reason to be skeptical. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, you've already got two justices who have publicly questioned the doctrine, which is pretty significant. So, you know, can they get three more uh, justices on their side for one of these cases to clarify it? it it's possible. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's just something that we'll have to keep a lookout for. Yeah, at the risk of sounding like a lawyer cliche that Andy would use, um, you know, this is a complicated issue and it is mm-hmm, mm. constantly evolving. And so uh, this is definitely something that we that we will need to keep an eye on um, to see how things develop going forward. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about someone whose reputation is so bad they couldn't win a defamation suit. Not having enough time to thoroughly review case notes in a brief before filing isn't an option. Legal professionals like you make the time, even if that means pulling long hours and late nights. Well, Westlaw Edge just released a new feature on QuickCheck that will give you that time back. QuickCheck Quotation Analysis is an at-a-glance report that shows differences between case quotes in an uploaded document and the actual case language on Westlaw Edge. Use quotation analysis to find weaknesses or inaccuracies in your opponent's documents that you could use to your advantage and to ensure your quotes are error-free, because accuracy is everything. To learn more, visit tr.com slash quickcheck. All right, so for our last segment today, I want to talk a little bit about um, an, an interesting case that I recently wrote about. I feel like when we talk about defamation and libel cases, we focus a lot on whether or not the statements are true. And in this case, it was interesting to see a judge say, (laughs) not only are these statements true, but everybody already knows. So why are you even here? Essentially. (laughs) 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 And so a little background on this. Um, Last year, former New York Met and now Emmy award-winning broadcaster, Ron Darling, released a book called 108 Stitches, Loose Threads, Ripping Yarns, and the Darndest Characters from My Time in the Game about his time as a Major League Baseball player. And along with some kind of wistful stories reflecting his time as a Major League pitcher, he included a story about an incident at the 1986 World Series where his teammate Lenny Dykstra shouted a series of wildly racist taunts at opposing pitcher Dennis, quote, oil can Boyd. So (laughs) shortly after the book came out, Dykstra filed suit for defamation and libel against Darling, his ghostwriter, the publisher, everybody that he possibly could have thrown this at, he did. Um, He claimed that the story forever labeled him a racist and caused him emotional distress as well as lost opportunities. <laughs> so, Andy, I know you're a big baseball fan. Um, do you have <laughs> do you have any thoughts on this right off the bat? <laughs> yeah, Lenny Dykstra doesn't need anyone else's help to make him look like a piece of garbage. 
<laughs> he, he's he's done that enough on his own. You sound like the judge in this case. Uh, <laughs> so I found this case really interesting because in the book itself, um, Ron Darling doesn't say exactly what Dykstra said. Um, and I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Uh, he's made it pretty clear over the years that he's he's had all kinds of racist, homophobic, sexist, all kinds of word vomit coming out of him over the years that really, I don't think anything would be surprising at this point. Um, Darling, yeah, didn't, didn't print any of what he said. Um, he did say, uh, quote, the stuff coming out of Lenny's mouth was beyond the pale. It was unprintable, unmentionable, unforgettable. I found this judge's opinion really interesting because he he didn't really didn't really hold back and basically <laughs> said what Andy just said is that you know you don't need any help ruining your own reputation um, and so the judge labeled Dykstra a libel-proof plaintiff which is something that I had heard of but I had never actually seen a case where this came up and pointed out that Dykstra was infamous for being quote, among other things, racist, misogynist, and anti-gay. And since baseball fans out there who are likely to buy this book most likely already know this, would you agree with me on that, Andy? Yeah. um, (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, And so his conclusion was that the book couldn't do much to tarnish his reputation because he was already there. And so it's (laughs) it's both, um, I guess, rough for Dykstra, but kind of entertaining for me to have a judge say that as a matter of law, everyone already knows that you're a hateful jerk. <laughs> yeah, the 80s, 80s professional sports were vastly different than what they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, however, Lenny Dykstra has just continued to be clown himself since then. Oh, be clown himself. I love that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I love this. This has got to be the the worst way to lose a civil case ever. It's basically you're garbage, so you lose. <laughs> <laughs> it just as I was reading the opinion, I kept thinking about um, Gene Wilder in the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory movie, where he says, "You lose, you get nothing." <laughs> Good day, sir. Yeah. <laughs> like, just, so. Uh, yeah, that's that's my story for the day. Yeah, and I was, 90, 1993 me just absolutely hated Lenny Dykstra and his giant wad of chaw that was always oh. making making his cheek bulge out <laughs> about six inches. Mm, <laughs> lovely. Yeah, that's a good image to leave our listeners with. Thank yeah. you, Andy. <laughs> Uh, That's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Check the show notes for related content and lp.findlaw.com for more uh, writing by me and Joe. And uh, (laughs) And not (laughs) shameless shameless self-plug and Andy as well. (laughs) And uh, if you have a minute, please rate, review and subscribe and we'll see you next time.